If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Haggai, and we'll be looking at Haggai chapter 1 this morning. Haggai chapter 1. The prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says this, In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, This people says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses, while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. He who earns wages, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine and the oil, and what the ground produces on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, a messenger from the Lord, spoke by commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. So as we consider this chapter this morning, we'll consider it under three main points. Number one, building the second temple. Number two, the church as the temple, and point number three, how to build. So building the second temple, the church as the temple, and how to build. Now in order to understand what is going on here in Haggai chapter 1, we need to understand a little bit of the historical background. When the city of Jerusalem fell into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar in the siege of 586-587 BC, the city was destroyed along with the temple that Solomon had built. And the people of Judah were taken into exile with the exception of the poorest people of the land. And then when the Babylonians were overthrown by the Persians in 539 BC, the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree that whoever among the Jews wanted to go up to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple could do so. And we read about that in our unison reading from 2 Chronicles 36. You can also read about that in Ezra chapter 1. And the book of Ezra chronicles for us the the history of that period. And so Ezra 1 opens up with this decree from Cyrus, but 
And then by the time you get to Ezra chapter 3, you read about the beginning of the work on the temple. So far, so good. But by the time you get to Ezra chapter 4, there were some problems. Some of their local enemies had begun stirring up trouble to hinder the building of the temple, going so far as to write a slanderous report to the Persian king in the the text of Ezra. He's referred to as Artaxerxes. Historically, this is probably uh, a king known to history as Cambyses, who was the successor of Cyrus. And in so many words, this slanderous report sent to the Persian king stated that the Jews were rebuilding Jerusalem so that they could rebel against the Persian government. And with that, the king understandably issued a decree to put a stop to the building of the temple. You can read that in Ezra chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. And so on the one hand, the Jews had been permitted to return and to rebuild the temple, but then as things had progressed, they had been hindered, hindered even in an official capacity from continuing the work. And Ezra 4 ends with them being stopped by the force of arms. And so we read in Ezra 4.24, Then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. So King Cyrus had told them to build the temple. His successor, Cambyses, had told them and forced them to stop building the temple. And now there's a, a third king on the throne, King Darius. So far in his reign, Darius seems to have said nothing about the temple in Jerusalem, neither commanding it to be rebuilt nor forbidding it from being rebuilt. And so if you were a godly Jew in Jerusalem, what were you supposed to do in a time like that? Which edict were you supposed to be following? And what are you supposed to do when you have contradicting edicts from the two previous kings in a legal system where legally... The laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be revoked. And now you have a new king on the throne. What would be the godly thing to do in a situation like that? And that's where Haggai comes into the picture, bringing the word of the Lord to them in the second year of King Darius, which is most likely about the year 520 B.C. And he speaks particularly to Zerubbabel, the governor, and to Joshua, the high priest, and uh, who were the civil and religious leaders of the people, he tells them to get back to work. And then in verses 2 through 11 of Haggai chapter 1, the Lord confronts these people with their characteristic attitude, their current crisis, and the, the cause of it. And he also shows them the way out of this predicament. I think Matthew Henry summed up the situation of the people quite well when he said that they, being served with a prohibition... Sometime after, from the Persian court, and charged not to go on with it, they not only yielded to the force when they were actually under it, which might be excused, but afterwards, when the violence of the opposition had abated, they continued very indifferent to it, had no spirit or courage to set about it again, but seemed glad that they had a pretense to let it stand still. Though those who are employed for God may be driven off from their work by a storm, yet they must return to it. As the storm, as soon as the storm is over, and uh, Matthew Henry, I think, captures the the mentality of these people. They'd been uh, sent there, and God had wanted them to rebuild the temple, and then they have these legal decrees that drove them off from it. And it's almost like, yeah, hey, cool, we're on vacation now. No need to to build the temple. And even when the the violence of opposition abates, they they seemed happy to continue. In, uh, in taking a vacation from building the temple. And so they're happy enough to, to lay off from the rebuilding project. And Haggai depicts them as saying, the time has not come. Even the time for the house of the Lord 
to be rebuilt. It wasn't that they were absolutely refusing ever to do it, but they were refusing to do it right now. So instead of focusing on rebuilding the temple, they were, we're told, focused on building their own houses. And so verse 4 shows the contrast between them building paneled houses for themselves while leaving the house of the Lord desolate. So they're choosing to focus on their own physical things rather than to focus on the things of the Lord. And the Lord was displeased. This is why he calls them twice in our passage, both in verse 5 and in verse 7, to consider their ways. He points out to them that all their focus on physical things had only been striving after the wind. It had not gotten them anywhere. You see this there in verse 6. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there's not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns wages, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Now, just as a side note, we should not suppose here that the Scripture is approving of drunkenness. You don't have to read too far in Scripture to find that drunkenness is a sin. The idea here is that though they drank and had something to drink, there was not enough to satisfy them. The point is that all of their intense focus on their worldly pursuits was not paying off. And the Lord makes it clear that this is not, this is not simply random or simply coincidental Instead, in this particular case, there was a one-to-one correlation. There was cause and effect between their neglect of the temple and their economic crisis. Verses 9 through 11 makes the point clearly. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. And so notice here that the Lord is not simply passive and allowing bad things to come on the people. The Lord was active in these things. He was the one who called for the drought that had come upon them that had led to their limited resources. That was the situation of the people, and it wasn't pretty. And so the Lord calls them more than once to consider their ways. In other words, take a good look inside and see why you're doing what you're doing. And the way out was also clear. Get back to work on the temple so that God may be pleased and so that God may be glorified. And that's the thrust of verse 8. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased and uh, with it and be glorified, says the Lord. And then according to verse 12, the people did what they were told. They obeyed the word of the Lord that had come through Haggai. They showed reverence or feared the Lord. And so they responded in obedience. And now it's worth noting, as this passage in Haggai continues to unfold, that not only do the people get their act together, so to speak, and obey the word of God that was spoken to them, we're also told of some very encouraging realities there in verses 13 and 14. First, Haggai is sent by the Lord to declare his presence with them, that he was with his people, and he was with them for their good. And I think we might almost picture the situation like an exchange that would take place between a parent and a child who has needed to be corrected. If that child's heart is at all tenderized by the correction that they have received, they may need a little bit of special love and care to know that the parent 
is not upset with them anymore. They discipline them in love, but the season for discipline has passed, and they embrace one another again. And the Lord acts toward his people much the same way. So we read in Psalm 103, verse 13, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And that's what these people did. They, they feared him, right? We see that there in uh, the end of verse 12. They showed reverence for the Lord, or they feared the Lord. And as such, they also needed a compassionate and gracious word from the Lord. Just like children who have been corrected need reassurance from their parents. And God graciously gave them what they needed. He reminded them of his presence with them. And in addition to the promise of God's presence, we find in verse 14 a statement that summarizes the outcome of the chapter. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. The people did what they were supposed to do. They came and worked on the house of the Lord, and this happened because the Lord stirred up their spirits. He stirred up the heart of Joshua the priest, of Shealtiel the governor, and the hearts of all of this remnant. The Lord was working in them, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure, which is what we find in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. Now, some of you who may have looked ahead at the preaching schedule and noticed that, Lord willing, next week we're going to be starting a series on the Gospel of John, and thus, at this point, only having one sermon on Haggai, only considering chapter 1. For those who pay attention, you might note that this is not the way we normally do things around here, right? That we normally preach through entire books of the Bible. And so why are we having just one sermon on Haggai between a series on Amos and a series on John. What's going on here? Well, I'll tell you. The reason we're here in Haggai chapter 1 is because the elders and I feel that as a church we could stand some exhortation in this regard. An exhortation, in so many words, to build the temple. Now, what, what do I mean? Well, that brings us then to, to point two, which is the church as the temple. Obviously, the outward religious life of the people of God is very different now from what it was in the time of Haggai. In the Old Testament times, the temple uh, at Jerusalem was, or at least should have been, the focal point of godly worship from the time of its construction in the days of Solomon onward. And it was a great blow to the religious life of the people when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And we catch a glimpse of that in the words of Jeremiah, Lamentations 1-4, where he says that the roads of Zion are in mourning no one come, because no one comes to the appointed feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests are groaning, her virgins are afflicted, she herself is bitter. And so Jeremiah is describing the desolation of Jerusalem, and one of the things that he hints at, or gets at explicitly there in Lamentations 1-4 is that Nobody's coming to the temple. The temple has been destroyed. There's no place to come to. This was a great blow. If the psalmist can say, I was glad when they said to me, let us go up to the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord is not there anymore. There's no place to go to. And so those glorious days of going to worship God in the temple were a thing of the past. The highways are in mourning because no one was on them. There's no one going to Jerusalem anymore. This is very dejecting to the Jewish people. 
But then, in the great mercy of God, King Cyrus had not only allowed the exiled people to go back to the land, but had given his explicit sanction for the temple to be rebuilt. And the people returned to Jerusalem and began the work. And then, as we've seen, were hindered by a royal command. And when the immediate danger was over and there was this change in administrations, they were slow to get back to the work. They were too busy with pursuing their own personal interests instead of joining together in the work of restoring this focal point in their religious life, restoring the place that God had blessed them with the token of his presence. This was the Old Testament situation. Now, obviously, our situation as New Testament believers is very much different. We do not have an outward temple that is the token of God's dwelling place with us. Rather, collectively, we as the church are the temple. And we read of this in Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, where Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building, being fitted together, is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So the point is, is that we collectively, as the people of God, are the temple. Well, then how then is this temple built? Well, we, we read about that in our scripture reading from Ephesians chapter 4 this morning. And uh, we saw in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, that Christ has given to his church, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. Why has Christ given these to his church? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to the building up of the body of Christ. In other words, the building up of the temple. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. We, as a church, as a body, are built up by means of those gifts that Christ has given to his church. The result is what we find in Ephesians 4.14. That we're no longer children tossed about by false doctrine, but rather what we find in verses 15 and 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects and to him who is the head. Even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. And so Christ gives gifts to his church for the, the building up of the body so that we can grow in maturity. In other words, so that we can grow up into him, into his likeness. But notice there, especially in Ephesians 4.16, that there's a, there's a corporate nature to this growth that Paul has in mind. Certainly, we grow as individual Christians, but our growth is not to be isolated to ourselves alone. That's abnormal growth. What Paul pictures here is something quite different. He is not envisioning an assembly of well-developed Christian individuals who grow by themselves and are content to keep to themselves. Instead, what he pictures there for us is an organic growing body. Christ is the head. The joints do their work, holding things together, and each individual part does its work, and the body builds itself up in love. This, in other words, is a, is a corporate enterprise. It's not something that is done in isolation. Calvin put it beautifully when he said, This means that no increase is advantageous which does not bear a just proportion to the whole body. That man is mistaken, who desires his own separate growth. 
If a leg or arm should grow to a prodigious size or the mouth be more fully distended, would the undue enlargement of those parts be otherwise than injurious to the whole frame? If you have one part of your body that gets, gets big and the rest, the rest doesn't grow, this is not going well, right? Calvin says, in like manner, if we wish to be considered members of Christ, let no man be anything for himself, but let us all be whatever we are for the benefit of each other. How beautiful is that? Let us not be what we are simply for ourselves, but let us be what we are for the benefit of each other. And so, what's the point? We've heard about the importance of building the temple as it was in the days of Haggai. We've seen here in Ephesians 2 how the New Testament church is referred to as the temple. In Ephesians 4, we've seen how that temple is built. The Christ has given gifts to his church by whom the saints are equipped and the joints do their work of holding things together and each individual part does its work and the body builds itself up in love. But what does this all have to do with us? Why do the elders think that we need to consider this issue of building the temple? Well, this brings us to point three. It is because we need a nudge to build the temple together. And so let's, let's consider our context and the life of our church. This past year and a half has been a very odd time for the church universal. By the grace of God, I think that we at Andover have weathered those challenges pretty well. A lot of people, at least in pastoral circles, talk about the year 2020 being a hard year for pastors. And I'm sure that it was for many. Now, for me, logistics and planning were, were difficulty, but on the whole, by the grace of God, you all made my job and our job as elders very easy. We're grateful for that. Within our church, we've had different opinions about COVID, what should be done about COVID, how things should be handled, and so on. But praise God, those different opinions have not led to quarreling or infighting among us. Likewise, praise God, the difficulties of the last 18 months have not hurt the church's budget. Right? By God's grace, you all as a congregation have continued to support the church financially. Similarly, despite all of the tensions in the broader culture, we've hung together as a church and we've had peace. And these are great blessings and we should be thankful for them in the life of the church. This is a tangible manifestation of the Spirit at work. This is a tangible manifestation of the grace of God at work in our midst. And we should be thankful for that. But even though we have much to be thankful for in these regards, we still need to think about this issue of building the temple. We still need to think about building up one another in the life of the church. Now, pastors and teachers obviously have a unique role in that regard with respect to preaching and teaching, the administration of the ordinances. Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. Now, if we let the full weight of those words hit us, teaching and preaching are perhaps more important than we usually think. Paul says, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. And I say that not to lift up myself, but because of what those words actually mean. We're told in Romans 10:17 that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The way that God works is to grant and sustain faith by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. Is it any wonder then that Jesus tells us in Mark 4:24, take care what you listen to. And so this is one important way that the temple is built, is by the body of Christ being gathered together to hear the word of Christ together. But in addition to that, 
As we saw in Ephesians 4.16, the body is held together by what every joint supplies according to the working of each individual part. And we read a little bit about that in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, where the writer says, consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is how the, the temple is built, by stimulating one another to love and good deeds, by encouraging one another, by not forsaking our assembling together. Every joint has something to supply for the well-being of the whole body. Every individual part is to be doing its own proper working. Now, it's certainly true that we can stimulate one another to love and good deeds at other times than when the church gathers, but the time when the church gathers ought to be one of the main venues in which this encouraging of one another and stimulating one another toward love and good deeds occurs. Obviously, Sunday morning is our main gathering of the church, And much that is good and wholesome in this regard of stimulating one another to love and good deeds can be done when we gather here on Sunday morning. And we see some evidence of this in Ephesians 5.19, where Paul says that we are to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. Right? How encouraging is it to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to lift up our voices together. It's encouraging to me. I guess sound travels forward, and I'm usually right there when the hymns are sung. It's very encouraging to me to hear the voices of the church singing the truth of the gospel and the truth of the word of God. It's encouraging. Augustine described the period after his conversion by saying this. He said, How greatly did I weep in thy hymns and canticles, deeply moved by the voices of thy sweet-speaking church. The voices flowed into mine ears, and the truth was poured forth into my heart, whence the agitation of my piety overflowed, and my tears ran over, and blessed was I therein. Augustine describes being in the church and hearing, hearing the, the church, what he called the sweet-speaking church, singing the, the truths of God, and he broke down and wept. How encouraging is it to hear the truths of God sung? And if we have the opportunity and are willing to take it, we can also be intentional about speaking to one another about spiritual matters and pointing them to Christ. This uh, obviously takes some intentionality and discipline about speaking to one another, not merely about how's family life, how's work. Those are important conversations to have, but also sometimes we need to, to dig a little bit deeper into one another's lives and, and speak to them. It's easier not to. Right? It's easier to, to stay on the surface. I know it. And I'm sure that I have a lot of room to grow in this regard myself. How about you? We're all supposed to be engaged in this work of, of building up the temple. And if we can... Build the temple in those ways by gathering together in the main gathering on Sunday mornings, then we can also do this at other times when we gather as well. And by God's grace, our congregation has done well in getting back to regular Sunday morning services after the upheavals of last year, but our other services, Sunday nights and Wednesday nights, have been more sparsely attended. If we choose to absent ourselves from those gatherings, whether we would like to believe it or not, we're missing out on opportunities to build the temple or missing out on opportunities to build ourselves up by absenting ourselves from the opportunities to hear the word of Christ, by opportunities to to pray together, 
uh, and opportunities to, uh, to sing together with one another. We're also missing out on opportunities to edify one another and develop deeper relationships with one another in the body of Christ. If I may borrow and appropriate the words of William Beveridge in his work, The Necessity and Advantage of Public Prayer, he said, All the common affairs of this life ought, both in reason and in conscience, to give place as much as is possible to your serving God, so that your souls may live and be happy forever. If you would but keep these things always in mind, you would not consider whether you can spare time from minding the world to serve God, but whether you can spare time from serving God to mind the world. Not what you may lose by going to church, but what you may lose by staying at home. We shouldn't ask, what should I lose by being at church? We should rather be asking ourselves, what would I miss out on? What would I lose if I were not at church? Now, it's obvious to me that in a sermon like this, there are many caveats that need to be made, right? We've been blessed, first of all, to have many visitors in our midst in recent weeks. Let me just say, we're glad you're here. We're glad that you are visiting. Obviously, you need to be building the temple somewhere, but that doesn't mean that you have to build the temple here, right? You're trying to figure out where to go to church? That is fine. Um, and so I'm not preaching this sermon that you, to say that you need to be building the temple by joining Andover Baptist Church. That's something that, that you'll have to work out and think through. But please don't hear my words and conclude from them that I'm trying to persuade you that you necessarily need to do that here. There are other good places in which the temple of God may be built. And so that's not what I'm trying to say here. And likewise, I understand that many people, some people, have legitimate reasons like work schedules, family conflicts and concerns, and other things that keep them away from some services of the church. I get it. There are times when, due to those kinds of things, my family is not here at every particular church service. And so I get that. And so I'm not trying to advocate a legalistic piety that says if you're not at every stated service, then you're sinning. That also is not what I'm trying to say here. But what I am trying to say is this, that namely that as New Testament believers, we're called to build the temple, called to build up the church. And I am saying that if we're not careful, we could be like those Israelites of olden times who should have been building the temple, but instead were engaged in selfish pursuits, in building their own houses instead of building the temple. They're saying the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. We're fallen people just like they were, and we can fall into the same tendencies and traps that they did. Matthew Henry commented on the Old Testament situation of the should-be builders when they were, uh, when they were opposed by their opponents and saying, but for anything I know... Some of the builders were almost as willing it should cease as the adversaries themselves were. At some periods, the church has suffered more by the coldness of its friends than by the heat of its enemies. But both together commonly make church work slow work. And so I would say to you what we read here in Haggai. Consider your ways. Remember that the work of the church requires many hands. There is more to it than just the sermons that get preached on Sunday mornings and those who sit here to hear them. Though that's an important part of the building of the temple. There's more that needs to be done than that. There are Sunday school classes that need to be taught. There, Lord willing, will be a wana this fall. There are nursery workers uh, that are needed. And there are people 
that we need to, to brew coffee for us and to clean up afterwards, trimming bushes, pulling weeds, and so on. This list could go on and on. And your service in the church helps you take ownership for things here at the church and at the same time helps alleviate the labor of those who are already working. And if there are ways that you, can feel, that you feel like you can serve in the church, talk to the elders about it. We would uh, love to, to plug you in somewhere. And sometimes serving the church in small ways can lead to greater service in the future. Just think about Stephen in Acts chapter 6. Stephen helped out with the daily distribution of food to the widows, but was later used by God to, to preach the gospel in such a way that it frustrated his opponents, such that he was dragged before the Sanhedrin, proclaimed the gospel to them, and became the first Christian martyr. He didn't start out as a preacher. At least we're not told that he did. And so again, consider your ways. If there are good and godly reasons as to your current practice of building the temple, if you have good and godly reasons for what you're doing, then by all means, as the saying goes, keep calm and carry on. By all means, keep calm and carry on. May God bless you richly. If your current practice of building the temple is, however, not based on good and godly reasons, then consider your ways. If some priorities have gotten mixed up, then change them. We serve the God of all grace, who, as we find in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8, is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. And this, of course, is because of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came into the world, die for sinners, and to rise again on the third day. So that we're saved by his grace alone, not by works, so that no one can boast. But rather, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so by God's grace, according to our gifts and abilities, let's all seek to do just that, to walk in good works for the good of our neighbor, for the good of the body of Christ, and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the great gift of your church, the great gift of the, the body of Christ, the love that we have with one another. Lord, we ask that you would help us, that we would labor together that your body may be built up. Lord, we pray that you would encourage our hearts in this labor and let us all labor appropriately according to the gifts and abilities, uh, the time and the talents that you've given to us. Lord, we ask that you would help us to serve you with willing and cheerful hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.